Welcome to Talk with the Texan, Money and Life with Troy Eckert. This program is thought-provoking, informative, entertaining, and down to business. We face facts and ideas about how to make, protect, and build your net worth. You'll get over three decades of frontline experiences and real-life examples of what to do and the pitfalls to avoid. Now, here's Troy Eckert. Hey, 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 everyone. This is Troy Eckerd. Talk with the Texan Money and Life. Today is a great day. All I can tell you is that everything is changing in the world. We as sophisticated individuals and hopefully sophisticated investors are looking at all the dynamics taking place, trying to figure out how do we balance the one key thing in our life, which is money and our life. Look, I'm Troy Eckert. I've been around the investment world since 1985. I continue to be amazed at the dynamic shifts that are taking place in the market. It's very clear to me that there are different things taking place today that, at least in my almost 40 years of being around the industry, have not seen before. And what that tells me is that when you have so many moving parts that are taking place, um, you better keep up with the information, you better keep up with the news, and you sure as heck better understand or try to understand what the dynamics are. So that way you can plan your life and prepare to protect your money in the best way you can. So let's just talk about today's topic. Today's topic is what I consider to be a gathering of garage sale items. What the heck? Gathering garage sale items? What's that have to do with money and life? Well, I find it very interesting that when you do a Google search and you look for certain topics and you start to ask questions, Uh, everybody becomes instantly an expert. I mean, everybody becomes an instant expert. And you can just take page one, page two, page 10, and you keep finding more more and more information on a particular topic. In fact, just change one or two words in the question or one or two words in the search in the URL, it's a whole new set of feedback based on different algorithms and and information gathering. So if we liken that to pre-internet days, what we find is that It was the same thing walking into a room. I could walk into a room of 50, 60, 100 professionals. Maybe it's a CPA gathering. Maybe it's a lawyer gathering. Maybe it's an investor gathering. You say, hey, has anybody thought about taking out a a 15-year mortgage? And man, if you had 50 to 100 people, you might get 50 to 100 different takes or opinions on that particular topic. So when I think about the show and I think about what my goal is each time I put together one of these uh, podcast, I think to myself, well, what what is the objective? What are you trying to do? And to be candid, I got a list that's as long as my arm of things that I want to talk about and, and, and express. But at the same time, I eliminate three quarters of them because I'm thinking, well, they're important to me. They're probably not important to the mass. Or, you know, out of all the listeners I have, maybe 10% like that subject. So I try to find one. I try to find a topic that makes the most uh, difference. It, it resonates more with more of the listeners than any other topic. doesn't have to be the only criteria, but it is one of the criteria. So today we're going to talk about a subject that I think is important for multiple reasons. Today we're going to talk about the common habits of wealthy investors. Common habits of wealthy investors. Remember, it's money and life. You don't live just to make money and you don't have money you don't get a very good life. And that's, well, you say, oh, I can argue with, you know, there's a guy that lives in a mobile home. He's a happy guy. He mows grass. He's got two kids, has no stress. He takes a fishing pole every day and goes fishing. And he's a happy guy. 
really, okay? Let's say his mobile home catches on fire. Let's say his kid gets sick and he needs to go to the best hospital. Let's say his a fishing pole breaks and gets lost in the water. He does need to have some level of financial security in order to have that enjoyable, passive, really relaxed life. And so there is a balance between money and life. It just may be at a different level. It's like going to the racetrack and you see five race cars out there and you got one that's in the in the sprint car division. You have one that's in the Trans Am division. You have one that's in the Formula One division. And they're all race cars. And the drivers all look happy. And the drivers are all competitive. The difference is one car is going to go one speed in a certain distance. And the other car is going to go 15 times as fast and go maybe in a different direction or a different track. That's really what it boils down to. You talk about thinking, what are the common habits of wealthy investors? So why did I choose this subject today? Because as I have a business that focuses on understanding, working for, guiding, leading, managing, advising wealthy investors all over the U.S., I am constantly looking to see um, how that mindset changes. I, I look back kind of like a post-mortem and say, what did investors in the 1980s, how did they think and react? The 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, and 20s. How do they change? Why is that? Well, if the if the leading indicator of any economy has to do with those that have the greatest control, money, power, political position, uh, the CEOs, the, the governance of each company, if they are the ones leading the, the current and the future changing the economy, well, then I better figure out what they're saying, what they're espousing, what they are putting out in information, both in technology and in product and expectation and financing. And they're literally telling the uh, downstream investors in public, this is where the economy is today. This is where it's going tomorrow. And we are laying down the groundwork so you don't get surprised. We're laying down the groundwork so you understand changes are taking place and they are going to be in a different way in a different format, in a different visual component than you seen have seen in the past. So for me, studying the common habits of wealthy investors is all about money and life. I mean, I talk with the Texan Troy Eckert. This is, this is what I do for a living 24-7. I enjoy it. I have, I have the greatest life in the world because every day I'm working with super smart, sophisticated, incredibly uh, robust individuals who look at the economy from all different angles. And when you sit back and you become the center point for receiving that information, man, you get a you get a different perspective. I can talk to a certain group of investors today, and they say the economy's leveling off. Looks like inflation's going away. We should be out of this uh, temporary recession slash slowdown in six to twelve months. I pick the phone up, talk to the next individual in a different part of the country in a different business or profession or sector, and they say, "Man, it just has gotten started. It is going to be deeper." more severe than 2008. It's going to be a horrible economy. Bankruptcies are taking place by the day in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. These smaller investors, these individual homes, these uh, individual states have no idea how bad it is and how bad it's coming. Whoa. That is like a 180 degree difference in not only perspective, but opinion. So I better figure out Really, what is the message that is resonating with wealthy investors? I better understand the habits of wealthy investors, how they are going to react if A or B scenario takes place. And more importantly is, for me as an individual, I like to see all the BS that's put on there. 
I like to see the BS that's put on it when they say these are the habits <clears throat> of wealthy investors. <clears throat> First off, there's no there's no common ground. Every single investor has their own characteristic, their own nuances, their own uh, way of doing business. They have their own habits. They have their own lifestyle. Um, so just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're in a common group. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you follow a certain pattern. But all these professionals, they seek to try to propose that there are common habits. And I like the word common. common. There's nothing common about wealthy people. I have been doing this since I was 20 years old. I'm 59. I can tell you one thing for sure. Wealthy people are eccentric. Wealthy people have a different way of thinking. Wealthy people have a completely different perspective in looking at a situation, an opportunity than every other person in the room. I might see demise. They see opportunity. I might see a declining market. Somebody sees a raging market. One thing about wealthy people, they are obscure. They are dynamic in their thinking. They're generally tremendous optimists, on and on and on. Of course, these are my definitions. So I'm going to tell you what I found online, and I think it's important to see because um, in many cases, it'll say the top 10 common uh, habits of wealthy investors. And I look down the list, and I go, mm, I agree with three of those 10. Well, how does Troy Eckert have any way of taking the other seven off the list? Because I've been working with millionaires for 40 years. For 40 years, I have sat at the table with guys that are guys and gals that are worth $1 million. And I've sat on the table with people worth $2 billion. And I have done this my entire life. That's I have only hung around with investors that have a million dollars plus net worth. So I've been dealing with the top 1% wealthiest people in this country for almost 40 years. So I'm going to tell you what I found, and then I'm going to tell you what I think. So let's get going. First and foremost, anytime you think about uh, common habits, you have to define what that means. Common means most likely found in the general population as a, a percentage, right? There's 100 investors. The most common thing between these 100 investors are they're white males 45 years and older. Okay, that's common, right? Because I did a survey, there's 100 people in the room, and I just went around the room and counted. Oh, that's what it looks like, right? Habit. What is a habit? A habit means a tendency to do the same thing out of just natural tendencies. A habit means Hey, I get up every morning, I put on my, my, my slippers, I walk the bathroom, I brush my teeth, I do X, Y, and Z. It's a habit because it's what I do. It's my, it's my routine. It's what I do every day. Uh, some people say I get up. First thing I do is I go in and turn my computer on. I look at the market. How's the market doing? What's it look like? I read the top articles. I see how my stock positions are handling. I see how my investments are doing. And before I even go in and have a cup of coffee, I spend 30, 40 minutes just looking at my investments. That could be a habit. So now that we know kind of what we're talking about when we say common habits of wealthy investors, now let's see what some of these so-called Google experts put down. And I'll tell you some of the things they put down that I don't agree with. And here we go. Common habits of wealthy investors. They avoid debt. They buy their cars, automobiles. They don't like to lease them. They don't like to retain them. They, 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 I mean, excuse me, they do retain them. Um, they like to keep a lot of cash reserves. They like to have cash on hand, access to cash. And that's just one of the things that they have in their kind of portfolio or mentality. They are constant investors. They have a plan. They work the plan. And they're always looking to deploy capital. Um, they do not and they try not to keep up with the Joneses. They don't look at their neighbor. They don't look at their business associates. They don't look at their friends and say, well, they've got a new house. They've got a pool. They've got a car. I got to have one, too. 
This particular author suggests common habits are they don't want to keep up with the Joneses. They seek alternative passive income. They want to find other ways to make money than their occupation, their business, or whatever derives from them being an entrepreneur. In other words, they want some other way of making income not tied to their labor or their services they provide. They seek best professional advice. Okay. Best professional, what is that? CPAs, lawyers, financial advisors, et cetera. Right. So I'm not going to go to the second one. Let's just tear apart this first Google expert. They avoid debt. That is so not true. Investors that are wealthy look at leverage as a tool. They look at, do I give you a dollar and buy a dollar's worth of goods, or can I give you 10 cents? Have you give me a line of credit for 90 cents and give me as long a term to pay it back as possible, and I still want those goods today. I'm willing to risk that for some reason, if I have to pay it off, I'm capable of paying off the other 90 cents, but I want you to burden that 90 cents. Why? I want to buy 10 baskets at a dollar, not one basket at a dollar. And I want to buy 10 of them by putting 10 cents down per basket. Have you financed the other 90%? And what I get is the duplicity of exposure to upside. I get the duplicity of maximizing, putting my money across multiple assets. And I'll let you carry the risk and the responsibility of the other 90 cents, knowing that if it doesn't work out, well, maybe one or two don't work, but the other seven or eight might work out tremendously well and cover the two that don't work. They say they want to buy your cars, no leases or debt. They want to retain their cars. I don't find that to be true. We have an older generation. I think we have investors that are probably north of 55 years old who do like to pay cash for their cars. They do like to retain them. They'll brag about, I've got a 1975 Ford truck I've had for 42 years, and I've driven it every day with 8,000 miles a week put on it, but it still runs, and I don't want to waste money on a car because it's a depreciating asset. The truth of the matter is, when I look at my current client base, they're 35 to 75 years old. And I would say for the most part, I don't see a single one of them driving a 15-year-old pickup truck. I don't see a single one of them driving some beat-up dented car. I don't see any of them driving a car that is any way a reflection of being older than maybe seven or eight years. I don't know if they own them by cash. I don't know if they lease them. I know one thing. Every single millionaire that I work with has one thing in common. They want to maximize their access to their cash. If they've got $100,000 in the bank and they want to go invest in oil and gas mineral rights or they want to invest in real estate or Bitcoin, they then need to look at buying a car and they say, well, do I spend $60,000 of the $100,000 buying a car, which is a depreciating asset, or do I go to Ford and say Ford's got a, a finance program at 3% on 72 months and I'll put a little bit down and I'll finance that car at 3% because I can make a lot more on my investment investment by hanging on to the cash. I can make a lot more than 3%. So I'm going to take the $100,000. I'm going to put $10,000 on the car, finance the balance on 72 months for 3%. And I'm going to turn around and take the other $90,000 and go buy assets that generate 10, 12, 13, 15% return on my money. The interest on my investments covers the 3% I get from Ford Motor Company, and therefore I have zero cost when it looks at buying the car, and it gives me access to my cash to create a higher net worth. See, I see that more the habit 
then they don't pay cash for their cars and they, or they do pay cash and they want to retain them. I don't see that. I think that's a that's an absolute non-truth in my view. Um, they like to keep cash reserves. Now, I've got to say you have to define cash reserves. Because cash reserves are what? Is it a month's worth of liquidity? Is it two months, three months? Most wealthy people that I come across, they have their basic fundamental needs already taken care of. They they know they have their credit cards paid off. They got their mortgage in place. They got their primary transportation in place. They got their house cost of living in place. And so they might have 50 grand, 100,000, 200,000 in cash that's accessible. It's accessible. They could get to it in a week or two. But I don't see any of my investors hoarding cash. In fact, I see the opposite. They, the investors I've worked with for 40 years, see cash in your bank as a waste. It's a negative drain on your net worth. Because why? Your money should always be at work. You should always have your money out being at work. See, I'm, I'm in the same boat as my investors. I look around and go, I got this much money in this bank and this money in this bank. What am I getting for a yield? Well, I get so busy, sometimes I'm like the cobbler's kid, I have no shoes, but effectively I look around and go, why is that money sitting there? Why do I not, I don't need it. I don't need it for six months. I don't need it for a year. I don't need it at all. Put it to work, put it to work, put it to work. Why? It's just the way we've been mentally trained. And that is you don't create a high net worth. You don't protect the fundamental erosion of your portfolio if your money's not at work. So we do, as wealthy investors, we do keep some cash on hand. We do have mentally a certain amount of level of cash that we have access to that says, if I need $10,000, $50,000, I can get to it whenever I want to. But the truth of the matter is, we don't hoard cash. What we hoard is the ability to access cash. So I'm not a believer that this particular Google expert is correct in hoarding cash. He says, we invest constantly. Now, I do believe that. I believe, believe any true investor, wealthy investor, should be, if they're not, they should be spending uh, 85% of their non-occupation hours, what they do for a living, non-occupation hours, thinking about the market, thinking about investment opportunities, thinking about particular asset classes, and trying to determine how I can figure out the best place to invest my money, the best direction I should be investing going forward as far as asset classes, what the market overall looks like, and I'm trying to assess risk, reward, regulations, all the things that make the most sense. Because at the end of the day, if we're not proactive in investing, we're never going to know what to invest in, and we will make fundamental basic mistakes that will not only lose us capital, but will erode our net worth after all those hours we put in making that money. Okay, so I would give him a kudo or a check on the invest constantly. They do not try not to keep up with the Joneses. Now, wait a minute. Let me help you define that. They don't want to keep up with the Joneses. Oh, yes, they do. It's called FOMO, fear of missing out. And so they may not look at their neighbor and go, hey, Johnny's got two Mercedes down there and just bought a new travel trailer. I think I need two Mercedes and a traveler. It's not always about things. When you say uh, they do not, or this particular Google expert says they do not try and keep up with the Joneses, I say BS. So some of the biggest things that happen in investing is Ponzi schemes. Some of the biggest things that happen is one sheep falls off the cliff and the other hundred follow them because they think the sheep fell off the cliff into a rosy green pasture, not realizing it was a canyon full of wolves waiting at the bottom. And so what we see as far as the uh, imitating or trying to be like the Joneses is, I don't care about your car, your house, your swimming pool, your lake house. I care that, hey, you got in that deal? 
Well, tell me about that. Is it a good deal? Do you trust those guys? Yeah. Well, I'm going to put in 50 grand. Do you know what you're investing in? No, I have no idea. But Johnny said it's a good deal. So the FOMO, the keeping up with the Joneses in investing is like a bunch of sheep about to get sheared. Wealthy investors have a horrible tendency to not look at the actual individual due diligence on investments and assets and decisions they make. They do it based on FOMO. I don't want to miss out. I need to be in this deal. I got to be in that deal. And there's nothing wrong with following the advice of friends. There's nothing along with, wrong with looking at some of the people that you associate with Say this person is really, really good at what they do. They have an insight. They're very much a leading edge thinker about investments and areas to invest in. And I give them a high credibility of knowing what is good or bad. So when Johnny tells me to invest in this, I trust his, his criteria. I trust his expertise. There's a difference between investing with FOMO and investing because you realize there's an opportunity with the right mentors, the right professionals that are guiding you in that direction. That's great. But when, he, when this guy, this individual says they do not try to keep up with the Joneses, I say it's BS. It's BS in the standpoint of investment FOMO. Now, it may be true when it comes to material uh, items and personal items. They may not want to keep up with the guy next door at the new Mercedes. But I can tell you what my experience is in the investment world investors are almost exactly like birds. The lead bird flies one direction, all the other birds follow. And that's why you look in the air, they, they are in swarms, they're in flocks, and you say, what's going on? Well, they've all decided that whoever the lead bird is, is going to be the one that leads the pack, everybody's going to follow. And it could be right into a power line, could be right into the side of a cliff or into a glass plated window. But they've all decided that they're going to think a little less on their own, they're going to have FOMO and have a fear of missing out. And in many cases, they lead themselves right into the slaughterhouse because the wolves are waiting at the bottom of that canyon when that sheep goes off the, the front end. The next item, they seek alternative passive income. Duh. What is, what is an alternative passive income source? It's a certificate deposit in the bank. I can put a million dollars in the bank. Bank paid me 4%. That's $40,000. That's passive income. Well, what else are you going to do with it? Are you going to print off your paycheck, print off your gain from the sale of that building, go print it off in $100 bills and, and stick it in your mattress or stick it in your room and stare at it every day? Of course not. Whether it's in a money market, certificate of deposit, mental rights, real estate, hard money loans, crypto, you're looking to increase the value of the money you have by either cash distributions or it's going to come in the terms of asset growth. So, of course, we're going to go out and seek alternative assets. So this is kind of one of those duh answers, which is, of course, everybody who makes money would like to have their money make their money, right? So when you define the word rich, rich is relative. Hey, that guy over there, he's rich. What do you mean? Well, yeah, he, go, he travels all the time. He has two cars. He lives in a nice neighborhood. That guy's rich. What's well, relative? Because the guy making the comment is living in a mobile home in an RV park or an RV in an RV park. And he's saying, that guy's rich compared to my lifestyle. But the person they're pointing to claiming that they're rich, the person they, they see as being rich in their eyes, that person is looking up the ladder saying, the guy that has more money than me and a bigger house than me and more cars than me and two lake houses, he's rich. See, rich is relative. What's the difference between rich and wealthy? Rich means you probably have enough income to live a good life. You have enough income to have choices and do things within that life that other people do not have. So maybe you're in the top 
of all the people in the United States. You get to make choice. You go on vacation, buy cars, you're not sweating, your kids go to school. Okay, maybe you're rich in 95% of the people that are looking at you, right? Wealthy is different in my view. Wealthy means I have enough money invested that my money makes me enough money. I can live any lifestyle I want to live within reason. In other words, if I've got a million dollars and it's making me 4%, that's $40,000 a year. I can't do much with $40,000 a year. If I tried to retire and live on $40,000, it's going to be a very modest lifestyle. But if I put $100 million in the bank and it's making me $4 million a year, and that $4 million is my passive income, I can do a whole lot with $4 million a year when I break that down on a monthly basis. Now, I would say that person is truly wealthy because their money is making them enough money. They can live pretty much any lifestyle they want to live. So I do believe passive income is important. I do believe that every investor, big or small, wealthy or not so wealthy, are always seeking to put their money in a place that will generate some value for the money as it's being part. Okay. The last comment the individual said is, and this one I find to be probably the biggest fallacy in this particular Google experts statement, he says, they seek the best professional advice. I call that 100% bullshit. Okay. What we find, in my view, is nine out of 10 investors are cheap. They're absolutely cheap. They, they don't go to the nicer restaurants. Um, they might take a nice cruise. Um, they, they don't buy super nice clothes, at least the investors I hang around with, right? They're, they're very modest. They're very humble about what they have. They're not flashy. Um, they don't drive Ferraris. They don't live in the nicest neighborhoods. They're fairly cheap. And the one place they're the most cheap in, to be candid with you listeners on money and life here at the Talk with the Texan, is they're super cheap on advice. They will join mastermind groups and spend 50000 a year listening to a person who's a fraud. They will send up, they will join these clubs and relationships and listen to people who absolutely have no uh, expertise whatsoever. They don't even check their background. They don't even check their resume. They sign up because of FOMO. Hey, everybody, my five friends are in this group. I'm going to join this mastermind. I'm going to join that mastermind. In my view, at least seven, if not eight out of 10 masterminds are complete frauds. It's nothing more than a small, loosely held fraternity. One person has decided to skin everybody else and say to them, um, guess what? I'm the expert. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you exactly what life is all about. And you're going to pay me money every year. I'm going to bring together some sponsors with some different products and investments. I'm going to sound like a genius and I'm going to have these nice little dinners. You're all going to make me rich every year, making five, 10, 15 million a year off of the fees you pay me. And I'm going to take kickbacks and fees from all the sponsors. And I'm the smartest guy in the room. Okay. You have just given direction, exposure, and access to your money and wealth to a group that's based on sand. It doesn't have a solid foundation whatsoever. <clears throat> Some of the biggest mistakes I've made in my career have been failure to hire the very best professional experts. When I started off when I was younger, I had no relative scale of knowing what uh, level of a CPA or lawyer that I needed to use or what financial advisor. I had a financial advisor. He was a friend of mine. He was stealing, stealing from his own clients, traded in my account without permission, has lost his license both as a certified financial planner and as a FINRA broker. Knew the guy for 20 years. He was stealing. Okay. I look at um, a CPA that I had back in the 1990s. I was making good income. I was running my investment firm. 
hired this CPA firm, paid like sixty or seventy thousand dollars, which was a lot of money for me. And I said, I need a full estate. I need you to set up some different vehicles for me to invest, and I need some asset protection. So I paid him all this money. Completely did it all wrong. And when I filed my taxes, my my CPA who did my taxes came back and said, uh, "Your estate planning CPA, your guy that put together all your entities, filed them wrong, and you just lost." $300,000 worth of tax write-offs because he filed it incorrectly. I had to threaten to sue the guy to get back my sixty or $70,000. I can tell you out of 100 lawyers, I fired 98 of them. Incompetent, self-manipulated, uh, don't do what they say they're going to do. They're wrong. They're weak. They're disjointed, not aligned. I've got great attorneys right now, but I've had to fire 98 out of 100 to get those. So I'm pointing out that when he says they will, that wealthy investors have the habit of seeking the best professional advice, I completely 100% disagree. Today, I'm watching my own internal partners, the investors that invest me today, I'm watching them come to me with bad deal after bad deal after bad deal. And I ask them basic questions. <clears throat> did you ask for their background and antecedents? What do you mean? Did you ask for the who the owners are of the company? Well, no, Susie's the VP of, of uh, operations and she runs the company. Susie's the stool pigeon. Susie's the one who's getting paid a little bit more fee than she would otherwise doing something else. So she's the front person for the crook, the liar, the cheat, the felon behind the scenes. And what they've done is they've hidden the fact they have felonies, bankruptcies, a, a long story career of failures and abusing investors. And they hired two, two knuckleheads. Or they hired Susie and put her out front. And you're investing with an absolute loss. It's a fraud. And you don't even know it because you didn't ask any questions. So you didn't seek the best professional advice. Hey, I want to go hire a lawyer. Um, that guy charges $600 an hour. The other guy charges $300 an hour. Really? Okay, cool. So you're going to go hire a lawyer because of his rate. Um, I could care less about his rate. What I want to know is his success rate. I want to know, can he win? I want to know, will he give me the best advice? Because sometimes winning with a lawyer is the lawyer having enough guts to say, you've got a bad case, don't spend any legal fees, settle, pay it off, get it to go away because you're going to lose and I'm just going to soak $200,000 in legal fees at you. So sometimes winning with the lawyer is not even fighting. Sometimes it's telling you, looking you in the face saying, you're going to have to spend some money and you're going to go through 12 to 24 months of a legal battle. But if you want your money and you want it right, you want that crook in jail, then you have to decide, is it worth your time and money to put up to go fight the battle? Well, that's okay. I don't mind that kind of blunt talk, but I don't want to have a wimp for a lawyer. If I'm going to go to battle, I want the guy who has the brains, the legal expertise, the understanding of the law, has the tenacity, has the finesse, has the ability to get that case across the finish line. And after he's done, I want to know I have a better than 50-50 shot, a much better than 50-50 shot at winning my case. Otherwise, the battle's not worth fighting. So I think from my perspective, this particular Google expert says, we want to seek the best professional advice. Again, I say that's bullshit. I'm going to say maybe, maybe 10% of wealthy investors I know truly seek professional advice. Now, I'm going to tell you, I changed my position about 15 years ago, maybe 20. And I had looked back over different lawyers and CPAs and financial advisors. And I said, here's the deal. For every penny, I think I'm going to save by hiring not the best professional skill set uh, provider, CPA, lawyer, financial advisor. So for every penny, I think I'm going to save. It's costing me a dollar, a dollar. 
It's like a 99 to one ratio. And I look back at all the, the money I lost, the deals that I got entangled in, the deals I should have never been in and I sought the right advice, the, the wrong a tax attorney, the wrong a structured contract attorney, et cetera. It, it cost me millions upon millions of dollars for me and my investors at that time. I look today and I don't even blink at my legal fees. I don't even blink at my CPA fees. I don't even blink at the advice I get from financial input when I seek it. What I find is that the little bit of money I spend in those particular categories is a 10 to 100 to 1 return on my money because not only is it about the advice they give me for what I'm looking to invest in or I'm looking to enter into a contract, it's the other 99 out of 100 deals they say, absolutely, do not do that particular investment. Avoid that investment. That deal right there is a fraud. It's a crook. It's not registered. It's illegal. They're selling illegal securities. That contract has all kinds of out clauses and identifications. And guess what? I could go on and on and on. And when they say they say to me, they look at me and say, you're out. I looked at a real estate deal about a week ago. I've got a, a, a good friend who's becoming a much better friend by the day. And he said, hey, that deal is a terrible deal. Look at the numbers. Look what it says. It's probably a great investment for somebody who just wants to park money. But based on what you're trying to do, Troy, it's, it's not a good deal. It's not a horrible deal. It's not the deal. And he went through about five minutes and explained it. I literally said, thank you so much. I'm out. I got off the phone, I emailed the broker, and I said, I'm, I want a termination contract, I'm out. Well, why do you want out? Because the professional I trust, the professional that I listen to, the professional that knows much more than me, described it, detailed, and went through it and said, that deal does not work. Exit. I didn't balk, I didn't look around, I exited. When I tell my investors, hey, that deal's a scam deal, I pointed out a Ponzi scheme two years ago, and I kept telling everybody that deal's a Ponzi scheme. They said, well, how do you know that? You just want us to invest with you. You just don't want us to put money over there. I said, I don't care where you put your money. I'm telling you that technology does not exist. I'm telling you that's a fraud. I'm telling you there is not zero credibility to that particular investment. And they denied it. And they all put in $160 million of investments. And so about eight months ago, before the Ponzi scheme was revealed, I told some of the individuals that asked, how do we know it's a Ponzi? I said, let's just get some basic questions to the individuals that sponsor this investment and the individuals who, in fact, are um, promoting it. Let's ask them some very basic questions and have them answered in writing. Okay, let's do that. So I wrote down, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 questions. I said, these are questions that should be easily answered. And if they don't answer them, you know, 100%, you're in a fraud. You're in a Ponzi scheme. They sent the questions. The person they asked the questions to said, we're not answering those questions. We don't have to. The other guy asked to answer. They never answered. They never answered. And they just took it. They said, okay, well, he's not going to answer them. I go, you're just going to let him walk away and not answer the question. He's got your money. You're about to invest more money. You're asking very fundamental questions. And he says, I'm not going to answer. Okay. So what, do you, what should you do at that point in time? I don't know. The average person is going to just take it and keep putting money in because that's what sheep do. They fall off the cliff. The flip side of that is, is that if you look at the common habits of what I call wealthy investors, they're going to say, I gave you money. I asked you very basic questions. These questions should be easy to answer. I'm going to give you three days to answer those questions. Or I'm going to hire that really good lawyer because I've really been good at, at finding the right lawyer. I've been really good at seeking professional advice from the very best experts because I'm one of that one-tenth of one percent of wealthy investors. And I'm going to give you 72 hours to answer that question. And then I'm going to find out really by suing you what's going on because this should be easy for you to answer. Fast forward 60 days, 
$158 billion, $158 million Ponzi scheme. The reason he didn't answer the question because there was never any assets. It was a fake company from the beginning, stole from his friends and professional associates, had been doing it for about seven or eight years. And the questions that were asked were so fundamentally basic, he knew his goose was cooked. They knew their goose was cooked. So at that point in time, it was very clear. The sheep had already fallen off the cliff. Many of them were trying to stack up and try to climb out of the canyon. It was too late. Money was gone. Hopefully they can recover something. I'm going to run real quickly through the, through the next uh, particular set of, of, of uh, descriptions, just because I think it's interesting to hear. And I'm not going to go detail by detail. I'm going to do a wrap up for this podcast. It says they set goals. They actively developed their inner circle. They work constantly to improve themselves. They're avid readers. They save money. I agree with all those. I set goals every day. I'm always looking who's in my inner circle, who I trust, who I want to get to know, who I want to be friends with, who I see as different resources that I want to uh, expose my life to. I'm always trying to improve myself every day. Criticism, hey, you're, you're mean, you're, you talk too fast, uh, you, you need to lose weight, you shouldn't do this. I'm always self-evaluating uh, who I am every single day because it makes me better, sharper as a human being, as a father, a grandfather, a business owner, an entrepreneur. I'm an avid reader. I read everything. And I don't read fiction. I can't stand it. It's boring to me. But I read everything I can get my hands on. I, I soak information in because it's more of like being a strain, a strainer, right? I, I want to soak in as much as I can, but only very little do I want to retain because only very little matters to me. And I do look at the macro view because, quite frankly, knowing what's going on in the world, in the world of media, with all the, the pundits are training the sheep to hear is critical. So I know exactly what my investors are hearing whether it's true or false, they're being trained with methodical drip information that changes or skews their thinking and probably in the wrong direction, right? Saving money, well, that's a no-brainer. You don't become wealthy by being a spendthrift. You don't look at your income coming in and buy another car or a boat. You don't leverage yourself. You don't put yourself at risk. You invest, and then you have things you enjoy in your life that you that you participate in, right? Um I want to just tell you the one last thing that I think is important in this particular podcast. There is no single list. There is no list about um, what common habits are common. See, the worst thing about saying what common habits are there in wealthy investors, um, I'll tell you what I think just from 40 years of working with wealthy people. They're highly inquisitive. That, I'm going to say, is 100%. They're highly inquisitive. I would say with about a 95% accuracy, they're highly optimistic. I would say virtually 100% are incredibly resilient. You can't knock them down. They take bad news. They get back up. They're constantly working toward a positive outcome and positive solution. I would say that um, wealthy investors also have the habit of being very uh, frugal. And I don't mean like cheap. I mean frugal in that they will not overextend or spend more money than they, they know they can earn or they have access to. Fools go spend more money than they have. Fools spend more money than they have access to. I find wealthy investors will take high-risk investments, low-risk investments. They'll buy assets. They'll, they'll do different things. But at the end of the day, they're fairly frugal in that they say, if I'm going to keep a conservative personal life, I want to invest a lot more money. If they have an elaborate personal life, they might be more conservative investments. But one of the things I do know 
is they're very frugal. And they're frugal from the standpoint of they're cautiously always investing, knowing they have a nest egg sitting back. They can live on. They save enough powder so that way they can take another shot at success if what they're currently investing in is not going right. And the last thing I would say about wealthy investors is that I think they're very um, humble. Okay, not all of them. But I would say one of the most common things that I see in the investors that I have, that I work with, and I've worked with for 40 years, don't get me wrong, it's about a 95% ratio because there's 5% that were arrogant and they're the richest guy in the room. And those people I don't do business with, I can give you a whole list of people that had a lot of money and I refuse to work for them. I fired them. I don't talk to them. I said, you're just an arrogant SOP. I could care less how much money you have. You mean nothing to me, right? But the 95% that I've seen in the last 40 years, they're humble. They can walk into a room, sit down and have breakfast with you, talk about life, talk about sports, talk about the economy, talk about your family. You'd have no idea the guy you're sitting there with has $50 million. You'd have no idea the guy you had breakfast with is a billionaire. You'd have no idea if you didn't know any history on them that they're sitting on $10 million in cash or they just sold their dental practice for $12 million or they just sold their business for $40 million. But there's that 5%. There's that 5% that walk around, and when it starts to sprinkle or rain, they drown because their head's back, their nose is in the air, and it fills their nostrils because they're so busy thinking they're important. They, they're so busy thinking that they're rich. They're so busy thinking that they're somebody special. And for me, I have fun with it because when I see somebody like that, I know for a fact they have no friends. Nobody really respects them. Nobody wants to be around them. People just hang around them to see what they can take from them. And I see it all the time. I've got a guy that's worth about $300 million. I've known him for about 20 years. Um, really, I can't stand the guy. And what's funny is, is that he sits on this massive uh, $17, 20000000 million yacht, got a couple of staff running around kissing his butt. No friends, nobody there. Never seen the guy with friends. Don't know if he has any friends. And he just every day has his financial statement in his pocket to tell you how much money he's worth that day. And I'm thinking, you're really a poor man. You're poor. You have no common habits of a wealthy investor. The common habit you have is you're narcissistic, you're greedy, you're selfish, you're lonely, you're pathetic. Hey, look, folks, uh, each time I do these presentations, what I want you to take away today is why don't you ask yourself, what are your common habits? Ask yourself, who am I? Am I a guy that likes to avoid debt? Um, am I somebody that's going to seek the best professional advice? Because if you don't, you better start. I don't care if you're 70 years old. You need to start today. If your CPA is not good, fire him. Get somebody else. If your lawyer is not good, fire him. Get somebody else. If your financial planner is not giving you good advice and he's always about stay vested in the market, you know, you got to be in, you got to buy on the down dip. What you got is a fool. And you need somebody who's going to tell you, hey, the market's overheated. You should go to cash. You need to do these different habits that apply to you. You need to find your own habits. And then you need to take those habits and make it almost your calling card saying, this is who I am as an investor. This is who I am as a person. And this is the way I manage my life. Recognize your strengths and your weaknesses, but then also recognize you can improve the weaknesses and you can enhance the strengths. And every day I look and say, who's Troy Eckert? What do I do? Where do I make my mistakes? I do postmortems on everything. Make a good decision. Well, why was it a good decision? What happened? What made it go right? I do a bad decision, I tear it apart. What caused me to make a bad decision? Um, if I lose my temper in the parking lot, leaving my church service on Sunday, I'm like, well, okay, you can't leave church and cuss a guy out in the parking lot. There's a disconnect between 50 feet of walking out the front door of the church, getting in your car. 
I look at that and go, what's going on? Why, why'd you lose your temper? Why don't you try to do the right thing? So by doing postmortems and being true to ourselves, we get to determine what the habits are of our own individual habits. And then we get to figure out what's weak and what's strong. We get to work on those. And what's really kind of cool is we can do it no matter whether we're 35 or 75, because every day is a chance for us to be a better human being, a wiser, more intelligent investor, recognize the investors around us, have their own list of, of, of habits. And some may be common. Many may not be common, but at the end of the day, do have one thing in common. We're wealthy. We're the most blessed people in the United States. If you have a million dollar net worth or higher, you can count yourself as one of the very, very few lucky stars in the United States. I want to say there's 20 million millionaires. I'd be willing to tell you there's 15 million. Five million of those 20 million millionaires, you cut off their cash, and in 90 days, they're broke. They have mortgages and cars and, and margin accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So the report says 20 million millionaires. I'm saying there's 15 million millionaires. And I'm saying of the 15 million millionaires, 10 million of those 15 millionaires are sub $10 million. It's not a bad thing. But when you start getting to the 50 million, when you cross a $100 million net worth, the last number I saw was there's like 12,000 millionaires that are over $100 million in the U.S. That's not a lot of people. It's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of people. So we, as a million-dollar-plus net worth individual in this country, we are the most blessed, we are the most fortunate, we are the absolute, we are the cream of the crop from a financial perspective, okay? But we have the ability to help others, and we have the ability to look at our own habits, and we have the ability to change who we are, change our direction, because we have the ability through money and life we have the money side handled because we already have the money. For those of you who are not a millionaire today and you are working toward and you will be a millionaire, remember, a millionaire is only a financial position, but a millionaire without a great life is really nothing at all. Hey, I'm Troy Ecker, Talk with the Texan Money Life. Thanks for listening to me. I hope you appreciate the show. I have more coming up. I plan on loading up the system with two or three more podcasts shortly. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Take care. Thanks to all our incredible friends for joining Troy for today's show, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Please join your host, Troy Eckert, for another edition of the program every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Troy, engage him, challenge him, but most importantly, listen to him. Three decades of expertise at your disposal. We'll see you here next week.